Welcome to Signs of the Times, a look at recent world events from around our kitchen table. This week on the Signs of the Time podcast, we have three guests. We have Thomas from Great Britain, Lynn from Canada, and Ryan from Australia. Thomas has Thomas has fled Mexico to live in the UK, <laughs> trying to get as far away from Bush as he possibly can. So we'd like to welcome the three of you here. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks. And we would like to talk with our guests a little bit about what's going on in the world, how they see this from their countries, what kinds of things are going on in, in their particular countries in response to the events of the world. One of the things that I find living in Canada is that um, because the States is so completely intertwined with Canada, not so much culturally but definitely economically, that, that we are, I find, the majority of the population quite mesmerized by what the States is doing in with respect to Canada, of which we have many you know, yay that, you know, we're making money this way and boo, they're using NAFTA against us that way. But it makes it very hard to step back and uh, and take stock of their behavior generally worldwide. And I think while Canada may not um, actively agree and go along with some of the things the states have done, they're still annoyed that we would not go into Iran with them. We're just so preoccupied with trying to hold our own that, that it's really difficult to start making good judgments about what else they're doing because we just don't have the time or the attention span. Well, one of the things the United States has been trying to do for many years in talking about globalization is setting up uh, free trade zones with everyone. And one of the first free trade agreements, if not the first, that it concluded was with Canada, with the NAFTA agreement. Both Canada and Mexico were involved in this. What effects have you seen in Canada from this? And, um, uh, Tomas, uh, what effects have you seen in Mexico? Uh, well, uh, uh, what can I say? Mexico has been um, always, or at least since I remember, a, a country with pretty much uh, hard uh, contrasts between what you see with the privileged people, people who have money and people who do not. And... Um, it seems to me that even when the country has gained at least a small terrain in the area of democracy, for example, there are more rules now, there's somehow more transparency, not as many frauds are, as they used to be. On the other hand, I get the impression that also the, um, the process of uh, more extreme capitalism taking place is... Uh, is actually uh, going uh, stronger. It's not not only have there not been any real uh, social measures uh, uh, in favor of people of common people, but uh, uh, things have actually gone worse. And I would um, pretty much uh, attribute this to this uh, NAFTA. It's uh, the logic of capitalism, only a step further, I would say. Does that concord with the experience that you've had uh, seeing the effects of NAFTA on Canada, Lynn? Um, I would say in spirit, yes, they're not as obvious about it. I mean, you don't have the um, Mequadoras, is that the name? The zones, the factory zones on the border. 
maquiladoras. Thank you. We don't have anything like that. But in terms of the spirit of it, um, people who've stood up for the country, like um, Pierre Burton and others, have accused of us of properly behaving like a colony, where we sell oil and raw materials to the states and import back the finished products. Although we don't, the, the states doesn't even have the grace to to do that anymore. They to, um, send it on out to. Uh, Japan or China, China these days. But um, the thing that, that is most irritating, especially because I live in, in an area that is definitely resource-dependent, is the refusal to abide by agreements that they particularly enforced, and NAFTA's at the top of the list, uh, to wit uh, softwood lumber. They have lost, the states has lost in the last 11 years, at last count, 22 World Trade or GATT or NAFTA judgments and has refused to remove tariffs or abide by the rulings that they themselves brought suit for. Uh, they just lost one a month ago, and they're appealing again. The uh, whole mad cow thing is another thing. Uh, I have neighbors who are nearly out of business, bankrupt, because as soon as we had a mad cow, um, chronic wasting disease, they uh, sh shut the borders uh the area I live in imports nearly all live cattle for processing to the states, and they're losing money. And when the government, this, oh, this was the corker, when the governments, uh, provincial governments stepped in to try and aid these people, these small feedlot and uh, cow-calf operations are called, a good many of the calves appeared to be owned by an American organization called RCAF, and aid was handed out per calf, and RCAF got about 30% of it. So the... the view is, from the bottom of the heap, if you will, is that all the rules are stacked in favor of the states if for some unexplained reason things happen to go against the states in whatever arbitration procedures there are, they, they just simply ignore it. And on the other hand, knowing people in the states, they are completely oblivious to these situations because I will question them and talk to them. Have you heard this? Have you heard that? And they're like, well, no, that just hasn't been in the news. So it's it's uh, quite it astonishing. Seemed, it seemed to me for a long time that Canada was in a certain way a, a laboratory because it shares the long border with the U.S. because of the incredible dominance of the U.S. media in Canada. It's a very large percentage of Canadians are able to receive every American uh, TV channel. Uh, and so with this great dominance, with the economic dominance, a lot of things that we see happening in other countries right now are things that have played out in the last 40 years in the relationship between the United States and Canada. You talked about the United States ignoring international agreements uh, when the rulings come down in, in Canada's favor. And, of course, this brings to mind George Bush and the U.N. and the whole manipulations that went on in terms of preparing the ground for the invasion of Iraq, and when finally the U.N. Uh, wouldn't give him permission, he went and he did it anyway. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so true. And the other thing I would say is that uh, it's been an interesting experiment for them because they did not have to uh, put any overt force or propaganda because there is this, this shared cultural basis. Everything was done on quite a subtle level, and you, you really didn't even notice it happening because we're all friends and we have the most, the longest unprotected border and we're such good buds. But all of a sudden, little by little by little, and it's always been this way from the very start, the, the balance has always been tipped ever so slightly towards the states. I just, um, 
have an observation here that uh, the fact that you have two countries, um, uh, one which is really powerful and rich, uh, like the United States, and another one which is really not, like Mexico, and you have them one next to the other, and you have a relationship of commerce and uh, uh, transit of people on a daily basis, uh, has also, uh, unfortunately, uh, how should I call it, like uh, a dark side effect, if you want, um, and I'm not talking only here about black market, but uh, uh, things related to crimes. And I am thinking specifically uh, about uh, three things. First, uh, the illegal trade of uh, of people, actual people who want to cross the border to in order to get a job in the United States. Uh, these people get uh, really low salaries in their hometowns in Mexico. Uh, things that... Uh, are really amazing how people could actually live out of it. So men in whole uh, villages in the countryside would cross the border illegally into the U.S. to get a job, for example, picking tomatoes or whatever. And, um, of course, in the U.S. they would get paid by, uh, with dollars, which would be much better for them, and money which they would use to send back home. Uh, but on the, other, on the other side, since they are illegals, they would have absolutely no right so um, first they have to risk their lives in order to cross the border because they have to do so crossing the desert and uh, dodging the border patrol and uh, dodging the Texas ranchers, some of which are really aggressive and uh, really do not like the idea of uh, foreigners coming into their country. Um, and once they are in there, they have uh, not even the minimum rights that a regular worker would have. So this is a very problematic situation because Mexico is dependent on this uh, sort of black market situation. So that's one. Uh, the other one is, of course, drug dealing, which is uh, very strong. And um, if you grab newspapers and read the news, you always get the point of view, well, the idea that uh, it's uh, Latin American drug dealers who are the criminals and who have uh, all, the, uh, all the fault on their side. They are the guilty ones. Um, however, the the obvious thing, but uh, generally overlooked, is that the consumers are all over the border. And uh, this creates problems on both sides, of course, on the side of the consumer and on the side of the producer. And the last thing that comes to my mind as a sort of case study is a horrible situation which has been taking place for several years now in uh, Ciudad Juárez, which is a city on the border, um, of something which uh, Lynn mentioned uh, a while ago, the maquiladoras on the on the border. Um, because young women go to work to these places which are pretty much exploitative. Uh, they have to work uh, even at uh, night shifts, and they have a, a minimum security, and they work in uh, zones which are really dangerous for them. And they go out at night and invariably every week or maybe even daily, I, I don't have the features with me, but uh, they get murdered and raped. And um, there have been, I don't know what it might be, maybe 300 cases of women serially murdered by God knows whom. Now the police is absolutely helpless into what it can be done. They have uh, captured some... Uh, groups here and there, people who they they say are really the criminals, but uh, no matter what they do or who, who they get, 
after a while, they will be more murders. So apparently it's not just one person. Now, once I heard this theory, which, which uh, made really a lot of sense to me as to the reason why this is not, uh, this is a problem, a continuing problem that cannot be solved. And it is that there is, there happens to be a U.S. military base on exactly on the other side of the border. And apparently, uh, during the weekends, these soldiers go out and go to Ciudad Juarez to have fun. Now, if the police happens to know that uh, at least some of these murders are committed by these, uh, by soldiers from the U.S., of course, they will be incapable of doing anything about it because you don't want to to mess with uh, the United States and least of all with the, with the U.S. Army. So as you can see, the it is not as simple as uh, people are getting poorer because another are richer. It is it is worse than that. It there are many levels to to how this problematic can can develop. Well, that kind of brings up the the question of um, talking about the U.S. Army and, and Mexican nationals crossing into into America. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the past couple of years about uh, how lax the security is at the at the American border uh, with Mexico, and that um, you know essentially it's just uh, the situation is that the that that Mexican nationals can pretty much cross freely. Okay, they have a little they have some border guards and stuff, but there's a lot of people crossing into the U.S. from Mexico freely. And uh, one of the allegations that has been made was is that um, that this uh, this kind of um, attitude or open attitude to to border security from the U.S. government um, f- ties in with the need for uh, U.S. Army recruits, particularly at the minute, for um, for the war in Iraq and and, and elsewhere to, to bolster U.S. forces, because um, more and more um, th- there are fewer and fewer uh, American nationals joining up to to the to to the armed forces in the U.S. Um, so, is that something that you have been aware of in the past um, in, the, in the past few years uh, that that people you know or people you've heard about from Mexico that uh, a certain percentage of them are, are are joining up or end up in the U.S. military? Um, well, this is the kind of things that you would never actually read on the newspapers. But uh, it is also the kind of things that people uh, are pretty much aware about, that uh, the U.S. might allow at least some part of the immigration to take place illegally in order to then afterwards have... Um, the possibility of um, uh, offering the nationality to people who may actually be willing to become soldiers and to fight for their wars, but uh, personally, I have had uh, I haven't really met anyone who have who has come to, through this situation. But uh, it is something that is talked about. Yeah, and it's um, one of the things that 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 um, seems to be true anyway. Is that I mean there, there are. We don't know the numbers, but there are certainly a, uh, a significant, relatively uh, significant percentage of um, non-U.S. nationals uh, in the, in the U.S. Army, and they're in Iraq at the minute. And one of the things is that they um, they're offered U.S. citizenship for their for their efforts, but only after they have you know done their tour of duty or completed a tour of duty in, in Iraq. And the benefit to the U.S. government and U.S. military from this is that obviously, if um, 
if, say, Mexican or any South American uh, people from any, or men from any South American country um, that join up uh, as non-US citizens to the, to the US military, um, if they die in, in action in, in Iraq, then they don't actually have to list them as missing or killed in action uh, because they're not US nationals. So it's only when they've completed their tour of, that, 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 that after they survived that they're then offered U.S. citizenship, you know, which is obviously, uh, like you said before, is a real. It's just another area of the exploitation of, of, of you know, essentially, you know, poorer people. Obviously, there's reasons why that why anybody around the world are, are poorer than the average American or average and average European. But um, it really is uh, uh, just one more example of the many ways that these people are exploited. They're set up in a way to to be exploited, you know, through economic means primarily. This is where, where the, the status and the, the, um, the affluent financial situation of, of many Americans comes from. It's essentially through the, this economic exploitation of, uh, of other peoples around the world. And obviously, then, as, as we've just been saying, the, that, that exploitation becomes a, a physical exploitation in terms of actually using the, the, the body, these bodies as, 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 as foot soldiers on the ground in Iraq. We should note that... Uh there were reports this week that the death toll of American soldiers in Iraq had topped the 1,700 mark. And, of course, anybody who's been following the news closely knows that this is an absurdly low number and that the United States, when they calculate the death toll for uh, American soldiers in Iraq, don't count anyone that dies in a U.S. military hospital outside of Iraq. So the countless numbers of soldiers that get shipped off to Germany to heal or to die, aren't counted. And there was a report a few weeks ago, somebody was estimating that it's probably closer to 8,000 people, which is almost three times the number of Americans that died on September 11th. Yeah, so speaking of exploitation, we've heard from uh, Lynn from Canada and Tomas from Mexico. And of course, these are countries that are uh, closer to home, so to speak. Uh, we also have Ryan from Australia with us, and as we're all no doubt aware, Australia is considered, well, considered at least by the Bush administration to be an ally in the war on terror. But of course, as we've reported in the science page, quite often the governments of the so-called allies of the United States in the war on terror don't necessarily represent the views of the average person in such countries. So one of the things that we thought we would ask Ryan is... What's the, what the 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 general view of uh, the average Australian, if you will, uh, on the whole war on terror? Uh, of course, recently we've had stories on the science page about the the new anti-terror laws. Uh, of course, these are quote unquote anti-terror laws, but basically they're simply further restricting civil liberties, uh, just as we've seen happen in the U.S. So, what exactly is the the general feeling about the war on terror uh, among us among Australians and how do they view, view the US. yeah view the U.S. and also the the Australian government for for going along with George Bush and his crazy crusade? There seems to be a very noticeable split. Uh, many people I talk to are very enthusiastic about um, what's happening. Uh, not so much in terms of um, the violence that's happening, but rather the um, economic and strategic benefit that uh, being allied with the US brings and uh, there is the other side too which is uh, people who are very much 
uh, aghast at what's happening and uh, think that uh, Australia is becoming far too involved with the US. And um, it's very difficult sometimes to to tell which uh, perhaps some portion of the the population is the majority view because the uh, the media is very much completely controlled to to put it bluntly in the same way that uh, much of the US media is and many important stories are just left out and uh, or or covered or uh, spun in a particular direction and uh, there's also a very noticeable slant uh, towards certain subjects which are favoured by the Bush administration and uh, the the global goals of the um, underlying agenda behind the war on terror. It was interesting, Lynn mentioned before, about the uh, NAFTA agreement. Uh, Australia recently uh, signed its own free trade agreement with the United States and uh, it was widely viewed by a lot of the uh, people in primary industry and production as being quite unfair to Australian uh, producers and uh, exporters of um, raw materials, uh, notably sugar and beef. Uh, There was uh, two very major areas that um, stood to benefit from the deal and they had all sorts of uh, caveats and um, prescriptions placed on them so that they were unable to gain the benefit for the deal except over sort of a large number of years before the um, the real benefits started to trickle down and, and the immediate benefits, uh, which would no doubt cause, um, look unfavourable from a US point of view, uh, were neglected. And uh, certain areas too, which uh, the, the prescription benefit scheme in Australia, um, which uh, keeps the price of uh, certain medications accessible to many people, this was uh, a, a very strong point of contention throughout the uh, process of of the deal being negotiated, and uh, the, the U.S. Uh, pharmaceutical companies were screaming blue murder about uh, their their access to the Australian market being restricted by this Australian legislation. And uh, however, it was one particular thing that was just too unfavourable from a public point of view for the government to push through. So uh, it ended up, at least for the moment, being left in place. And uh, the the agreement is now in force, it's now law, and it seems that uh, most people generally were unhappy about the balance of power, I suppose, how uh, the US gained a lot out of it, uh, yet uh, Australia, uh, noticeably a lot of the um, emerging like arts and um, like the mov- Australian movie industry were completely uh, shut down almost by the deal uh, because the US would have uh, a large amount of uh, access which made the competitive situation just very unfavourable for um, the Australian industries. The uh, the legislation that you mentioned about the uh, war on terror and uh, civil liberties has also been a, a dangerous precedent, I think, is being set. Uh, they're bringing in these things, and uh, Australia has never had a terrorist attack on its own soil. Yet, the way the Howard government is reacting, it's uh, as if to say we could be sort of at risk any day of a terrorist attack, and... Uh, with the, the recent uh, Al-Qaeda, in 
quotation marks, threat against um, Melbourne. Uh, a lot of Australians um, were sort of particularly worried about this, of course, and uh, it's interesting that it happened only days after uh, Howard's proposed legislation uh, for the new terror laws. Isn't it funny how those kind of coincidences happen over and over and over again? Yeah, what's really remarkable is that people just don't people don't, don't they don't pick up on it. You know what I mean? That, uh, but as time passes and things get more more and more blatant, uh, hopefully people will start to pick up on it. You know, but um, in terms of Australian terror attacks, I mean, it was interesting that uh, the Bali bomb in, uh, in two thousand and two. Um, looking back on that now, it seems that in light of the Australian government's siding with with the US and the, and the war on terror being one of the a member of the coalition of the willing in in quotes again um given that the that that uh, a significant number of of the victims were um Australians and coming at uh, just a year before or less than a year before uh, the Iraq invasion you could almost suggest that or you might almost uh, assume that um that this was an event carried out because it has been proven almost conclusively uh, that that the people who are the, the guys who were um, Al Qaeda in, in, in Indonesia, whatever, um, who were who were accused of carrying it out, uh, were not uh, the actual culprits. There, there's so many holes in that in that theory that it just it it, it renders it completely farcical at this stage. And um, so we've talked before about the idea of false flag terror attacks, and it would seem like that Bali bombing was was carried out by the the these same intelligence agencies that we've talked about before as a way to to shape and to 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 mould Australian public opinion uh, towards supporting the invasion of Iraq and supporting the Australian government's participation in the invasion of Iraq. That's indeed the case. Uh, there was a very strong emotional current produced by the Bali bombings, which uh, did affect a lot of other nations as well. And uh, yet, there was almost a um, capitalisation of the of this event by uh, the Australian government and and the media. Uh, you correctly described it as if to say it did take place on Australian soil because uh, even though it didn't, it was portrayed in the media, um, it was Australian deaths, therefore um, we as a country have been wounded by these uh, so-called terrorists. And uh, the, uh, the media... Uh, side of things really uh, pushed this emotional button home with uh, a lot of the audience and uh, I've had uh, people say to me um, we should just uh, send the army over there and wipe out um, the the Indonesians or um, we we should take over Bali or um, uh, there was a there was a case with um, uh, a a lady named Chappelle Corby who was uh, imprisoned in Bali for smuggling a large amount of marijuana and whether or not she actually did commit the crime uh, there was a lot of uh, emotional speculation around this and uh, many people sort of said to me well we should just go over and sort these guys out send in the SAS and and save this girl because uh, she obviously didn't do it and uh, the facts on the ground are, are very murky as to whether this did or did not occur and uh, yet many people are sort of jumping to this uh, this speculation which again has been led by the media uh, to say uh, well, we should be saving this girl who's um, who's Australian. Well talking about the uh, SAS and not the Australian SAS but the, the British SAS this time there was a story this week that I'm sure, hope, well hopefully most people are aware of 
were um, two SAS, British SAS agents in, uh, were caught uh, in flagrante, as they say, in, uh, with their pants down, whatever you want to call it, uh, or with their, uh, with their Arab gear on, maybe is the best way to describe it. They, they were caught in uh, Basra, in southern Iraq, um, dressed up as Arabs um, with a car full of explosives. Um, they, were, they were arrested um, by two Iraqi policemen who were doing their officially mandated job of uh, stopping such suicide, in quote, suicide bombings from occurring. And when they were approached by these policemen, they shot two of them and tried to escape. Uh, but they were, there was a car chase and they were arrested and they were put in jail. Uh, and the the British military then very quickly um, decided that they that this this situation could not could not happen that these two men could not be interrogated in any way because of what might come out or what surely would have come out um, and in fact what has come out if you're reading the science page um, so they the British military broke down the prison wall um, and eventually found them um, and, and and rescued them um, but the the fact is that these two guys. Uh, we're carrying out what what we have been talking about for a long time now, and it's it's concrete, objective evidence of the reality of false flag terror operations, where you have American or British or Israeli agents dressing up as Arab terrorists, carrying out Arab terrorist attacks, and then pinning the blame on Arabs, on on whoever they they, they choose, specifically Al Qaeda, I suppose these days. One of the interesting things was the the spin that was put on the story afterwards. That the entire focus of the story was diverted away by the by the by the military spin machine and the uh, and then subsequently picked up by the by the mainstream media, uh, where they stated that um, the the two the two guys had been uh, handed over to Shia militias, so, i.e., terrorists, um, and that this was the reason they had to be rescued. When in fact, as stated by the I think the Iraqi and um, Interior Minister, um, they had not been handed over to to, to any militant or, or terrorist group, but they that they were in the in the hands of the Iraqi police and the Iraqi government uh, for the whole time. And it seems that this story was just concocted to try and, as as we say, to divert away from the reality of the situation, which was that these two guys were were carrying on a very long tradition at this stage of false flag terror operations and. You can really go anywhere with that. Uh, when you have that evidence that this that this actually occurs, then you can track it back to any other uh, Islamic or Arab terror uh, operation over the past you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years, and certainly put a question mark over them if this thing happens. How many other so-called terror, Arab terror uh, attacks have been uh, carried out by not Arab terrorists, but by British, Israeli, or American intelligence agents? And in Iraq, we have the myth of Al-Zarqawi that uh, this uh, mythological figure who seems to be everywhere and nowhere at once carrying out bombings and leading the the bands of of terrorists against the freedom-loving... Unhindered by his wooden leg. Unhindered by his wooden (laughs) leg, nor nor his death. (laughs) Yeah, his death, which was reported uh, a few years back um, by people in Iraq that he had been killed in an American operation. Zombie terrorists. Yeah. Zombie terrorists. There we go. He's got nine lives, apparently. They're not just Arab terrorists. One one thing that I wanted to kind of remark on is the the approach that I've noticed being taken 
vis-a-vis the cultures that are closest, if you will, to American as opposed to things that are definitely the other. So when you have cultures that have a British Anglo-Saxon antecedents, so, so you have Canada, you have Australia, you have Britain, then the expenditure of resources is very martial. They try to do it subtly. They do it with news. They do it with... Uh, the one thing I noticed in Canada is their, the particular spin that was given, being given a lot of emphasis was bird flu and SARS. They shut down the city of Toronto for nearly six months over an epidemic, very large quotes, that killed 43 people. But this was this huge epidemic, and it had all the earmarks of an experiment in social engineering. What would happen if we had some kind of epidemic? How would people react? How would we do it? But that is a lot cheaper thing to carry out than bombing and flattening an entire city. So you can almost see this psychopathic marshalling of resources where you don't need to expend a lot. You won't because you can do it psychologically. You understand those that you are trying to manipulate, whereas the other Arab or African or South American, Latin, uh, Hispanic, uh, those you can just flatten because they're not really people. So speaking of social engineering, we have, of course, the big story of the week, which is the arrival of Hurricane Rita at uh, the Texas, possibly Louisiana coast. And, of course, with Hurricane Katrina, we saw the uh, alleged incompetence of the Bush administration, but that point is perhaps a bit debatable. Uh, but again, we have with, with Hurricane Rita, there have been stories today about they were trying to evacuate um, cities in Texas, and people couldn't get out. People had to stay, finish working, and they needed money to get out of the city, so they go to the these uh, these places where you can cash your paycheck and get cash, and of course these places had run out of money, so you have these huge lines and people saying, "Well, you know, if I don't have any money, how do I how do I get out? You know, I, there there aren't any federally or, or locally provided buses to take care of everyone." So basically, you have all these people who are again left behind. Basically, the exact same thing is happening. Uh, uh, the same thing that happened with uh, with Hurricane Katrina. You have a bus that blew up on the way out, and the authorities well, decided to block off the entire interstate, uh, which, of course, prevented um, the stream of vehicles from leaving the area. In terms of the uh, the argument or the debate over whether it's competence or something else, um, perhaps priorities, uh, it was interesting to, to see um, a quote from um, Castro, the Cuban president, uh, during the week, or well, over the past couple of weeks, maybe I'm not sure exactly when, but he stated that um, I mean, over over this hurricane season that, that occurs in the in the Gulf, um, Cuba has always um, performed admirably in terms of um, protecting its citizens and uh, evacuating people and minimizing any potential death toll. Whereas, as we've seen with uh, Katrina and probably now with Rita, uh, the U.S. kind of screws it up every time and there are far more deaths and far more, uh, much more chaos than, 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 than is really needed. And Castro actually stated that the reason that that, um, that this occurs in, in terms of um, Cuba's response is that all of its resources, uh, all of the resources of the government, of the various agencies, the rescue agencies, and of the military specifically are all focused inwards on 
helping and protecting the country and the people within the country, whereas in the US, for a long time, all of its resources, specifically its military resources, uh, but obviously that takes a lot of money and a lot of people to to focus on that, have have all been directed outwards around the world in this kind of uh, preemptive attacks and preemptive war. Um, So from my point of view anyway, um, I would see it as a case of priorities in the US in that they could easily um, provide the necessary disaster relief and protection for the people, but they just don't care. And the the mythology of the individual is so strong that Americans believe that in a situation like this, they should take care of themselves and they shouldn't depend on anyone else. There's no idea of networking, of uh, a community that will work together to overcome these things. It, all the individuals are left upon themselves and their own resources, and as we see... Many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and they don't have the resources in the bank to to get up and take off. Or actually what's worse is in there was stories, uh, many, if you can call it heartwarming stories, of groups that were in New Orleans pulling together, taking care of themselves, looking after their sick and injured and elderly, and being forced out of the situations that they had created where they yeah. were looking after themselves. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's just... Yeah. Disgusting. That, that that was that was a story about uh, people who had got together. Maybe uh, there were, at one point there were maybe up to five hundred people, but then there were maybe they, they whittled down to about three about a hundred people. And um, the ones who built, could not leave. Yeah, they had built shelters, and um, well, actually, I think this was a group of um, of, of tourists actually. Uh, but but the the, the the idea is they, it began as a group of tourists, but, and but then it, they gathered more yeah, more of grew, local grew. Um, new, local New York, New Orleans people. But when they uh, when they kind of started working together and and, and um, collect, collect, collecting food together and uh, they even built themselves a little makeshift toilet etc. The military came along and just um, and, and disbanded them, ordered them to disband and, and kind of took away their food even. Um, and this is evidence almost that it's that this this idea that, that Henry mentioned of um, of. I suppose it ultimately, ultimately, it comes down to the, the whole capitalist system, and it's 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 bred by the capitalist system of of you know um, every man for himself. Uh, so there is no idea of uh, as as we said of, of networking, of people sharing and working together and see, seeing themselves as a, as a community. In fact, there is, and and we noticed that uh, during Katrina that this was a natural response by a lot of people, but that this was actively uh, prohibited and. Uh, you know the, the the U.S. government and, and the military fought against this. You know, which suggests that it's just endemic. You know that this this concept is, is completely endemic. That that this is almost like a red rag to them. You know what I mean? That they when they see this see kind of cooperation working on their together, own. yeah, working together, then it's, it's a serious problem. Yeah, yeah, because that's we thinking, that yeah. breeds the, the that's the beginning of of the seed of 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 perhaps a, some kind of revolution. Dare we say? Well, um, the term revolution. Um, this, this mindset of, of people working together and helping each other um, is so commonly derided uh, as communism or, or socialism or um, so, or tied to um, these these kinds of systems that really have nothing to do with people just helping each other and and uh, sharing and uh, pooling resources uh, and uh, making the best of a, of a bad situation and yet that kind of mentality is uh, derided as somehow being uh, like pathetic in a way and uh, so many people seem to be buying into this capitalist mindset of um, 
every man for himself, uh, the user pays, uh, that the only efficiency can come from um, the market law, uh, which is uh, patently false and indeed uh, just causes further chaos and collapse under situations like Hurricane Katrina when people really do need to network and in order to survive in physical terms. You see, during the uh, the early days of the, the disaster in New Orleans, the reports that were coming from the Superdome were talking about roving bands of, of people with guns and, and rapes and, and, this and this and that. And the subsequent subsequent reports that have been coming out have been saying that this is a, giving a very bad twist on what was really going on, that uh, the people that had the, the arms were there trying to protect people and help people and going out and trying to get food for people. But once again, when people start to organize on their own, start to network on their own, this is taken and twisted. Yeah, because it's completely anathema to the entire capitalist system. You know, you have a hierarchy, we have people at the top, and you can't have people at the bottom, which is generally the great unwashed, the masses of people all organizing themselves together, because then that creates an imbalance in in their terms, in terms of, of the, the balance being seriously wa- weighted in, in favor of the, the elite or the, the people at the top of the pyramid. And the idea is to remove any other possibility. What is that? The true tyranny is the removal of all perception of other choices? So you only think that there is this one way, and that is the only way it could be. And any kind of vestiges or seeds of any other possibility have to be removed immediately. They're un-American. Yeah, so the thing about the thing about Hurricane Rita is that at this point in time, right now it's, um, it's probably about uh, midnight um, on Friday, the 23rd of September. So uh, Hurricane Rita is kind of bearing down on the... On the Texas coastline and should be arriving maybe in about 12 hours, 13 hours. Anyway, morning time Saturday, 24th of September. Um, so we don't know exactly what is going to result from this, but we can't really, th- I don't think there has been a, a, a precedent for this where there were two serious category three, four hurricanes in such quick succession in, in even in the history of, of the U.S. And wasn't there already a report that, uh, there was a wave, uh, yeah, eight the, meter the, waves. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that the levees in New Orleans have been breached again, and that the that part of the city is, is flooded again, up to waist height. Um, so we don't really know the effects of this, but we can assume that they're that they're going to be fairly serious, and that they could be the a precursor. Or they could precipitate other events. And we had a story this week about her. Well, not this week, but we um, it was a few weeks ago um, about how hurricanes essentially cause earthquakes that that essentially when a major hurricane passes over passes over land um or, or even over the gulf in the case of hurricane katrina that there were there were these tremors and that the earth essentially was, was shaking and vibrating um so the idea was that it, it could it had serious knock-on effects in terms of other natural potential natural catastrophes and a few uh if you look at the uh, at the fault line that runs along, um, the, this, including the San Andreas Fault that runs along um, the the west coast uh, of of the U.S., um, it actually runs along into and through the the Gulf of pretty much where mm-hmm. Hurricane Rita is right now. So um, you know we've been kind of predicting uh, an economic collapse in the U.S. 
before the end of this year, 2005. And, um, of course, the way that might happen will probably be unexpected. But certainly there exists a potential at this time and uh, with Rita kind of ploughing through uh, the most densely populated or oil refinery populated area of the Gulf that this could be, whether naturally or probably artificially manufactured, this could precipitate uh, ultimately the economic collapse that we have been predicting in the US. It does provide an interesting excuse for the uh, powers that be to, oh, the hurricane did it. Exactly. And uh, but obviously such situations, you know, we we don't doubt as 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 um, Roosevelt said, uh, if anything happens in politics, uh, it doesn't basically happen by accident. If it happens, you can bet it that it w- that it was planned that way. So um, time will tell, I suppose, exactly what will be the result of this current kind of chaotic state in the U.S. But um, things certainly don't look good. We've actually already seen with the arrival of Hurricane Rita, uh, there have been uh, yesterday, uh, that would be Thursday and uh, Friday, there were uh, swarms of earthquakes in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of kind of is, is is a little uh, hint that that what we're saying, or that what has been said in, by, by in this report, that that certainly the effects of these hurricanes are not limited to uh, water and wind damage that it could precipitate some other serious cataclysms, perhaps, who knows, a major subduction quake off the Pacific North uh, northwest coast uh, with maybe, you know, who knows, a 500-foot-high tsunami in Puget Sound and, you know, Mount Rainier activating and, you know, I mean, anything could happen here. And we already have the volcanic activity in Oregon. Well, that's it for this week. We'd like to thank... Our guests, Tomas, Lynn, and Ryan, for their observations. And we invite you all to listen in again next week. And as always, if you'd like to read more about the topics we've discussed today, you can visit our Weekend Signs page, which will be found at www.signs-of-the-times.org. So, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Music